Acts chapter 20, the book of Acts chapter 20. This morning we are going to begin a new sermon series through the book of 1 Timothy by looking at the book of Acts. This series through 1 Timothy is titled House Rules. And this letter is six chapters long and is written to a young pastor. And what 1 Timothy does is it provides divine instruction on what the church is and how the church is supposed to function. It gives instruction on the church, what it is, how it's supposed to operate, something that is desperately needed in our day when honestly many are confused or apathetic about the church. We usually walk verse by verse through books of the Bible, and we will continue that next week as we start First Timothy. But today we're going to look at some truths about the church in Ephesus, and to do that we have to bounce around just a little bit, which is why you're turned to Acts chapter 20. We'll get to that in just a moment. But before we, we dive in there, I want to remind everyone here of an important truth, and that's that every church has a story. Every church has a story about how it began and about how it was sustained. And every church has highs and lows and mountaintops and valleys. Any church you've ever been a part of, is that's true of, including here at Galleon Baptist Church. And that's no different for the church of Ephesus, which is the church that Timothy is pastoring. Ephesus is most famous for Paul's letter that he wrote to that church that we call Ephesians. But the Bible actually tells us a lot more about Ephesus than what's found in that one letter. Ephesus first is mentioned in Acts chapter 18 when Paul is traveling on a missionary journey and he stops in this city in Asia and he leaves two of his missionary partners, Priscilla and Aquila, a married couple there in Ephesus and he tells them, I want you to start a ministry here. He goes on to the next city and to the next place that the Lord's leading him. He tells them, I'm hoping to come back to come and see what the Lord has done. But you stay here in Ephesus and begin a ministry, begin to proclaim the gospel. Paul leaves them there. And after he leaves, a man named Apollos shows up. Apollos is mentioned in 1 Corinthians and a handful of other epistles. And this man, Apollos, is a Jewish man from the Egyptian city of Alexandria. And here's the thing with Apollos. Apollos knew the Bible. 
He knew it front and back. He was wise. He was intelligent. He could reason from the Scriptures. He was an eloquent speaker. And he came to Ephesus and he met Priscilla and Aquila. And he began to debate the Jews there to try to convince them that Jesus was the Christ. This was the kind of man that many would follow because of his oratory skill, because of his knowledge. And yet... Priscilla and Aquila had to pull him aside and disciple him and invest in him to teach him further about the gospel and to fill in the gaps in some areas that he did not yet understand. Through Priscilla and Aquila and Apollos, these leaders began to proclaim the gospel and a local church was founded, the church at Ephesus. Later, the Apostle Paul returns in Acts chapter 19, and when he gets there, he finds that there is a large group of disciples, followers of Jesus, and yet many of them still do not know everything about Jesus and still do not understand the Holy Spirit. It's here in Ephesus that Paul baptizes these men and women and the Holy Spirit falls down on them and empowers them to speak in tongues and prophesy and equips them for ministry just as the Spirit fell back at Pentecost in Acts 2. Ephesus had a Pentecost moment when Paul was there. Paul actually stayed in Ephesus for three years teaching and ministering there in the church, going house to house, engaging people with the gospel, teaching the whole of Scripture to them. And God empowered him while there to do miracles. Miracles that would verify his message. It's here in Ephesus that the sick were healed and the uh, demon-possessed had uh, demons cast out of them. It's here... The famous story of the, the sons of Sceva occurred. This is a story where these Jewish exorcists tried to start using Jesus' name to cast out demons, but when they did that, the demons spoke to them and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I've heard of, but I don't know who you are. If you ever decide that you're going to try to cast out demons, I want to encourage you to know what you're doing before that happens, right? Because how scary would it be to go and to try to do something in Jesus' name and then that happen? And it says that the demon leaps on these wannabe exorcists who are trying to use Jesus for profit and use Jesus to make their name great and wounds them so that they all flee buck naked. That happens in Ephesus. So Ephesus has a Pentecost moment. Ephesus has miraculous healing. Ephesus has people who are trying to to mimic what Paul is able to do by God's power. And demons are jumping out on people. All kinds of crazy stuff is going on. It's here that people who are practicing magical arts, they're trying to, to connect with 
with Satan and with demons, that they feel conviction over their practices and they come and they give up their books that had taught them how to do these things and they burn them in repentance books that would have been the equivalent of worth being millions of dollars. There were crazy acts of repentance that happened in Ephesus. Many miracles, many powerful acts of faith occurred, but there were also enemies there. There were so many people at one point turning to faith in Christ in Ephesus that the silversmith industry was in trouble. These silversmiths would make their money making idols. But so many people were turning to faith in Christ and believing and obeying the Bible that they depleted the market for idols which made the silversmith industry go down and began to affect the livelihood of those who were making money this way. So they began to cause problems. They began to start crazy riots that you can read about in Acts 19. There were enemies there who did not like the effects of the gospel on a community. At this point, Paul leaves in Acts chapter 20, to go minister somewhere else. But the church that has been founded and has seen God working in power continues there in His absence. Eventually, the Apostle Paul, who's now come and gone twice and has stayed there for three years and ministered, while he's away, he feels compelled by the Spirit that he needs to go back to Jerusalem for the Passover something that would be very risky because in Jerusalem, Paul was a wanted man with many enemies, and yet he felt like God called him to go to this risk, so he did it even though it was uncomfortable. He decided while he was sailing through the Mediterranean back down towards Jerusalem that he would not make a pit stop in Ephesus for it would delay him. But he did want to see their pastors one last time. Because Paul was sailing to Jerusalem knowing that he would either be imprisoned and possibly put to death as a result of going back here under the Spirit's guidance. So he calls the pastors in Ephesus to come out on a ship and meet him on an island so that they can have one final meeting. And that's where, that's where Acts chapter 20, verse 18, picks up. I want to read to you what Paul says to these Ephesian elders, these Ephesian pastors, thinking that this is the last time he will ever see them. Acts 20, verse 18. You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time, from the first day that I set foot in Asia serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit of God, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me that in every city imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, 
nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I've received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Verse 25, And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which He obtained with His own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years... I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up, to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I've shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how He Himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when Paul had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to his ship. Paul had been there and had sent the church planners who started this church. Paul had returned and had been used by God in powerful ways. Powerful, visible, Pentecost-like, community-changing ways in Ephesus. And now, Paul is saying to those who he had led to be the leaders of this church, I probably won't see you again. And as he gathers with them, thinking that this is the last time that he will see them, he gives them a charge. And he says, in essence, I've taught the whole Bible to you. And now I'm passing the baton to you. Watch yourselves. Watch your people. Watch your flock. False teachers are coming from outside and sadly even from within. They will lead sheep astray. So watch out. Preach the gospel. Protect the sheep. Paul leaves them and goes to Jerusalem. As he had thought, he's arrested 
And as his enemies try to condemn him to death, he uses his Roman citizenship to appeal to Caesar so that he's taken to Rome, put under house arrest, and the book of Acts ends. It's likely that while he's under house arrest that Paul writes the letter to the church in Ephesus that we call Ephesians. But what few know and what most historians verify is that after Acts ends, Paul is actually released from prison. He will eventually be arrested again and die for his faith, but he was released again, and it was after he was released from this house arrest that he sent a young man named Timothy, a man whom he had invested in and discipled, a spiritual son of his, to go to Ephesus and lead that church. So 1 Timothy in our Bibles is a letter Paul wrote to this young pastor to give instruction and encouragement for him to buckle down, stay where he is, combat false teaching, and pursue church health. In his own words, right in the middle of 1 Timothy, Paul says, 1 Timothy 3.15, I am writing these things to you, Timothy, so that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of the truth. So Paul says, the reason I'm writing to you, Timothy, is because I care about this church. I know its story. I've seen its beginning, its middle, its highs, its lows. I even went away thinking that I would die without having a chance to hear how their story ends. And I'm sending you there and I'm writing this letter so that you can help put the church in Ephesus in order. He writes this letter to embolden Timothy to lead faithfully when ministry is hard, when false teaching is everywhere, and when sheep are straying. So in summary, Paul knew Ephesus. The gospel had moved so powerfully there, there wasn't a market for idols anymore. The Spirit of God literally fell down like at Pentecost on believers there. But even with those amazing, memorable experiences, even with that kind of gospel growth happening in that church, Paul still knew that the church would always be susceptible to danger. So he charges the pastors in Acts 20 to be faithful and alert as shepherds of the flock. And he writes Ephesians to remind the church of the gospel and who they are and what they're called to be. And he writes to 1 Timothy, he writes to Timothy the letter to call him to be faithful and protect the flock. And then at the end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, the Apostle John writes seven letters to seven churches. And one of those seven letters is written to who? None other than the church at Ephesus. And John says, I see your faithfulness. I see how you stand for the truth. I see how you hate evil. But I'm concerned that you've lost your first love. And I'm calling you to rekindle your desires and your passion and your affections for Christ. 
that have grown lukewarm. The church in Ephesus has a pretty amazing story. We know more about this local church than any other local church in the Bible. It had ups and downs. And its history reminds us that no church ever arrives. Just like no individual believer ever arrives. Its story reminds us that we must press on and hold fast to the gospel. That's why 1 Timothy matters. Because it's a letter written to help a flock grow up into maturity. It's a letter written to help a church know how to organize themselves, how to hold each other accountable, how to be gospel-centered, how to exalt Christ, how to be led by the Holy Spirit. So it's extremely relevant to Galleon Baptist Church and is extremely relevant in our day for many reasons. But I want to point out just three. One reason 1 Timothy is relevant to us is because in our day, our churches are a mess. In our day, our churches are a mess. There's a culture that has been created over decades and decades where we are so eager to see God do something in someone's life that if we see the faintest flicker of faith in someone, we hastily go to them, affirm that they have been born again, baptize them quickly, make them members of our churches quickly, without discerning whether or not something real has happened in them without making sure that we know that they understand the gospel that saves, without making sure that they've counted the cost and know what it means to truly follow Christ. We're so eager to see God do something because we want to see people saved, which is a good desire that for years, for decades, we've emphasized getting people to make decisions without making sure that they've actually become disciples. And when this happens again and again and again and again, this lack of discernment and lack of discipleship in a local church leads to many people saying, I belong to this or that church, but their life shows no genuine evidence that Jesus Christ is Savior and King. And when that happens, the watching world knows and begins to believe that saying you follow Jesus does not really mean all that much. Because there are untold thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people in the buckle of the Bible belt whose lives show no evidence of true conversion. 
who have no commitment to the local church, to the Word of God, to living on mission, to saying no to sin, to repenting and pursuing holiness. And yet, because of a decision that they made long ago where a church with good intentions and good motives rushed them through a process of getting them to say the prayer, walk the aisle, get dunked in the baptismal, get on the church roll. There's thousands who say, I know that I'm right with God because of that, and yet their life reveals to all who know the truth of the Word that they're telling a lie, and they've fallen for a lie. I know that happens because that's my story. For ten years... I thought I was saved. I thought I was going to heaven when I died. I thought that I was right with God when there was little to no evidence of any true repentance and faith. I did not understand the gospel. I did not have any sort of commitment to the Lord Jesus. But one time when I was young, I had made an emotionally led decision. There's a culture of this. And when you say it, when you shine a light on it, you become the big, bad, mean guy who's being legalistic and unhelpful. You're quenching the Spirit. Friends, the Spirit doesn't call us to be foolish. The Spirit calls us to be discerning. Never in history has being a member of a church meant less than it does today. Many today say, Nick, there's no such thing as church membership in the Bible. Go read your Bible. It's all over the place. Go read the book of Acts. They kept numbers. They knew who was among them. They knew when people were missing. They held people accountable. When people who were a part of their church were living in public unrepentant sin and would not repent of it, they would kick them out of their church. How do you kick somebody out of your church? Because you know that they're a part of your church. Because you keep up with it. Because there's accountability. Because you're in each other's lives. It's all over the place. There's not a verse that says, Thou shalt be a member of a church. But it's so evident and implied in the Bible that to deny that is just foolishness. And yet in our day, because of the culture that I've just described, there are churches that have hundreds, even sometimes thousands on their member rolls, and yet only a small percentage of them ever show up. I'm a member at so-and-so Baptist church. I've lived in Galleon, Alabama for three and a half years and I meet people about every other week that when I'm talking to them, they ask me who I am and I tell them, oh, what brought you here? Oh, I came out, I'm the pastor at Galleon Baptist. And then they say, oh, I'm a member out there. Really? Because I literally didn't know you existed. Far less people actually come and are involved in the local body of Christ that are on member roles. And you know why this matters to me as a pastor? This is why. Because the book of Hebrews says that a pastor is going to give an account for the souls that are under his care. And that means that if this church in the past has allowed a bunch of people to be members who are no longer members here, they are saying and claiming, I am a member of Galleon Baptist Church. I'm the one that when someone dies in their family, they're going to call to do the funeral. I'm the one who when a tragedy happens, but, but, that, but I don't know them. I don't know their faith. I don't know their story. I don't know their testimony because they have removed themselves. Friends, this should not be. The 
Churches have hundreds or thousands on member rolls, but far less who attend regularly, and even less who do attend who are giving and serving and known. Sometimes you come, but you're just a face in the crowd with no meaningful gospel relationships, nobody watching your back, nobody praying for you. You're not using your spiritual gifts to build up the body. And in our day, when some of you guys are probably chafing against this. That's fine. I hope that this next little phrase is addressed to you. In our day, in the name of being loving, we're just trying to be loving. We're just trying to be non-judgmental. We're afraid to place expectations on believers, even though God's Word places expectations on believers. Many think that if you're telling me that you're going to hold me accountable to this and this, that's legalism. That's judgmental. According to the Bible, meaningful accountability from other believers is a precious gift from God to protect your soul. And you're cutting yourself off and making yourself a lone ranger and putting yourself in danger when in the name of being non-judgy and loving, you make your own rules because you don't read the Bible. In our day, God's design and the Bible's qualifications for church leadership are regularly ignored and explained away as modern values are elevated. It's no longer about what God's Word says that a church leader should be. Instead, it's about what that individual feels that the Spirit's leading them. I have news for you. There is one God in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit inspired the Scriptures. So if you're saying the Holy Spirit has called you to do something that the Scriptures say you're not allowed to do, then it's not the Holy Spirit who's talking to you. That's not how it works. In our day, pragmatism is our God and whatever works is our mantra. Success is defined by the number of butts in the pews and bucks in the plate instead of how the Bible defines success, which is faithfulness to God. Friends, our churches are a mess and that's why 1 Timothy is relevant. Another reason that it's relevant is because wolves are among us. Wolves are among us. They like to hang out on TBN and Daystar. Some are more obvious than others, but every one of them use the Bible. They quote Scripture and they pass the eye test of the undiscerning who forget that even Satan, the great deceiver of the brethren, tried to quote Scripture to Jesus to tempt Him to sin. Satan knows the Word of God. So just because someone quotes a Bible verse to justify whatever garbage they're teaching doesn't mean we should listen. Health, wealth, and prosperity preachers abound who preach that it's all about you, it's all about happiness, it's all about blessing. Name it and claim it because God is a genie and you have unlimited wishes and God's just existing to make your life happy. This is the message that's preached. Sin is minimized. Jesus' person and work are confused and denied. The Bible is twisted and people will do whatever it takes to draw a crowd. Wolves in sheep's clothing are devouring millions through their ministries. Some of them preach. Some of them write songs. Songs with bad theology that minimize God and elevate man. 
that ignore Jesus' work for us and instead call us to feel special and believe in ourselves. Songs that minimize my spiritual wretchedness and need and instead put on display, you can do it. Believe in yourself. Believe in yourself. And the masses eat it up. Why? Because it's easier to listen to a catchy song that has some feeling than to study the inspired and errant Word of God and love the truth and gain discernments. Bible teachers regularly pick and choose the parts of the Bible that they like while skipping, ignoring, or denying the parts that they don't like. Modeling a feeling-centered, experience-based faith, not a biblically grounded one. And as they do this, they call it being spirit-led. Friends, not everyone who uses the Bible and sounds spiritual is a Bible teacher that we should be listening to and influenced by. We must make sure that the substance of what is said and taught and sung matches with the inerrant, inspired Word of God. Because if we don't, then we are in danger of being fleeced by wolves in sheep's clothing. 1 Timothy is relevant because our churches are a mess and wolves are everywhere. But it's relevant for one last reason this morning. And that's that the Bible gives us direction and protection. The Bible gives us direction and protection. I was born in 1985, which puts me at 34 years old. And in the 1980s, there was a battle going on that I did not know existed until I was in my 20s. In the 70s and 80s, brave men and women in the Southern Baptist Convention, just a reminder, this is a Southern Baptist church. We believe Southern Baptist doctrine, just in case anyone was wondering. Brave men and women took a stand in our convention against a wave of liberalism that was sweeping our denomination. You didn't see it in local churches, so you might say, well, I was alive then and I don't remember that. It's because it wasn't happening yet in churches. It was happening in seminaries where they trained pastors and theologians who were going to pastor the churches for the next 30, 40, 50 years. The seminaries were full of professors who were beginning to reject the Bible's authority, were seeking to alter our faith in order to keep up with the times. But in the 70s and 80s, a conservative resurgence took place among Southern Baptists where they took a stand and said, we will be a denomination who are a people of the book. The Scriptures will be our authority. The Scriptures will be our guide. The Scriptures will be our handbook. The Scriptures will be the solid rock upon which we build our life. And by God's grace... The conservative resurgence took the day and took the convention back so that those who believe in the inspiration of the Scriptures won the battle for the Bible decades and decades ago. And yet, in so many ways, today we've lost the battle for the Bible. Because although we won it back then, biblical illiteracy is running rampant. People who claim to follow God, 
People who claim to treasure Jesus supremely, people who desire to be led by the Spirit, oftentimes are more influenced in the way they think by the world around us than the Word of God simply because they don't know what it says. We work hard in every area of our lives and yet so often we do not work hard and discipline ourselves at thinking deeply about the truth of God's Word. Many of us know Bible stories. We have coffee cup verses memorized. And yet, year after year, decade after decade, we never go deeper than that. We take for granted that we have the privilege of holding the divine words of God in our hands. Did you know that today there are people in our world who still do not have the Bible translated into their native tongue? There are people all throughout history who have given their lives to put the Word of God in the hands of God's people so that they could know Him and be saved, so that they could obey Him and be holy, so they could center their lives around Him and His purposes. And yet, we so often have a cavalier, apathetic attitude towards the treasure of God's Word. The reason that our churches are a mess, the reason that we confuse conversion the reason that so many people think that they're right with the Lord when they don't show any meaningful evidence and fruit in their life, the reason that so many fall for lies and half-truths that false teachers are preaching and singing is because the people of God have not prioritized treasuring, knowing, studying, meditating on, memorizing, discussing, and sitting under the inspired Word of God day after day after day after day, a little at a time, for decades, so that we have discernment. Our churches are a mess. Wolves are everywhere. And the Bible gives us direction and protection. Every church has a story. Every church has highs and lows. Every church has strengths and weaknesses. Every church is prone to wonder. But friends, the church is the body of and the bride of Jesus Christ. The church is the people of God. The church is to be an embassy and an outpost of heaven. You can't have church in your living room. You can watch a church service. You can have a Bible study. But you can't have church because the gospel is not preached and the ordinances are not rightly administered and there's not the keys of the kingdom given to your small group Bible study. It's given to the church by King Jesus 
our Savior and Lord. We're His body, we're His bride, we're His people, we're His embassy, we're an outpost. We're supposed to be a small taste of heaven. Friends, the truths that we believe and the lives that are transformed that we live will represent our Savior for good or for bad, which is a high and holy calling. And it's one that we should take seriously. And this letter to Timothy gives us instructions for who we're to be, what we're to believe, how we're to be protected, what leaders we should and shouldn't affirm, and what our life together should look like. So my prayer for our church is that God will use His Word this spring and summer as we walk verse by verse through 1 Timothy to conform Galleon Baptist Church into the image of Christ-likeness. My prayer is that our Savior will reform our church according to His Word so that we will be holy and happy in Jesus, truth-centered and transformed by His Spirit, and so that we'll represent our God well to the watching world in need of a Savior. Friends, we have God's Word. We have the truth. There's nothing else that we need. We have the blood of Jesus, the Word of our Savior, and the Spirit of God. And that's enough. So I pray that as we close this morning, as we prepare ourselves as a church to dive deep into God's Word, that you'll join me in praying that God will work in power and that God will sanctify us in the truth. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank You this morning for Your grace. We thank You this morning for the mercy You've shown us, mercy that is undeserved. God, we thank You that You are not a God who saves us and then sends us on our way to figure it out alone, but God, You give us the gift of making us a part of a body. God, we thank You that You save and sanctify. Lord, that You keep those who come to You. We thank You, Lord, for Your grace and Your mercy. God, I pray for our church. I pray that being a part of Gallium Baptist will mean something. That everyone in our community will know it means something. I pray that you'll give us discernment, Lord, to do what your word tells us to do. God, I pray that you will help us to be a people who are always willing to conform our lives individually and together to your word. Because your word is truth. God, we pray that You will open our eyes to see You in Your Scriptures and help us to be a people of the book. God, You have laid for us a firm, firm foundation. The foundation of the Gospel and the foundation of Your Word. So as we close now, we pray that You will get glory. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.